Hey guys, welcome back. Today we're going to discuss how music or really any other kind of art influences your subconscious mind. Note, question from listener. Again, thank you guys for these. Animus at AnimusEmpire.com if you guys have a question. This one is in regards to a tweet. And the tweet is, I don't know what account it is, but I've seen other tweets like this. So there's a theme of tweets and opinions online that fall into this category. But this tweet in particular is, music is hypnotic mind programming. The instruments make you feel emotional. Yeah, they make you feel emotional and easy to influence. Lyrics tell your subconscious mind what to believe, curate your music strictly and limit listening time. Not only does it indoctrinate you, but it tires out your brain. And this listener would like my opinion on this. What is the influence of music on your subconscious? For example, does listening to sad music make you more sad? Does it make you unhappy long term? Well, I think just to tease my opinion on this, it's complicated. And yeah, I guess that's my opinion. Is this complicated the relationship between your environment, between the art you consume, between the music you listen to, between the music's you wa- music you watch and your subconscious mind, how that affects us. It's a complicated relationship. And I think in an effort to make it seem more simple, to, to make us feel more secure, we simplify the relationship. We simplify it and we just say, well, sad music makes you sad. Happy music makes you happy. So if you want to be happier, what you do is you just listen to happier music. I think, again, that's an oversimplification. We'll get to it in this video. Um, It's really your interpretation. Your interpretation of what goes on in the environment, whether it's art you're listening to, music you're listening to, your interpretation is what matters. How you question it is what matters. I mean, just as an example, I mean, let, let's take um, like any piece of propaganda, <clears throat> uh, w- uh, like like wartime propaganda or pro- propaganda from uh, from a tyrannical government, like Nazi Germany or, or Soviet Russia. Right now, it's propaganda. It's it's there to make you think a certain way about something. But what happens now? We w- watch a lot of propaganda from Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia now. And it makes it look silly. It makes Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia look silly. Why? Because of the content of our mind. Because we can uh, challenge the propaganda with counterfactuals. And even if the propaganda is true, right? That's the nature of propaganda. It presents a small sliver of what's true with uh, disregards things that are also true that uh, contradict what the, the theme of the propaganda is. So it makes it seem silly, like propaganda now, right? Makes Soviet Russia, makes Nazi Germany seem silly because we understand arguments against it. We understand the lies. We understand the obfuscations of the truth. Um, You know, another great example of this, now that I'm thinking about it, is if a buddy comes up to you and says, hey man, you don't look too good, what's going on? Now, how do you interpret that? How does that affect you? Again, it comes down to your interpretation, the contents of your mind. What if you're feeling great that day and everything was going well? You had a sales meeting that went really well. I don't know. You had a great date with this girl and your buddy says, hey, man, you're not looking too good. What's going on? 
you're going to think, dude, are you an idiot? I feel awesome. My life is awesome. But what if things weren't going well that day? Then how does that influence you when your buddy comes up and says, hey, man, what's going on? You don't look too good. You start to think, oh, man, maybe I'm doing worse than I thought. What changes? Is it what you're... What your buddy says, does that change or your interpretation? Right? How you, how the contents of your mind relate with what comes in from your environment. I think you guys get where I'm going with this, but I think this is a very important point. And culturally, this is a very, a very powerful point that we get from uh, the left and the right. You know, you know, similarly, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, one of my favorite songs of all time, I mean, objectively the best song of all time and that's that's how you annoy a lot of people as you say that a band or a song is objectively the best but one of my favorite songs of all time is estranged by guns and roses now this is a song about being estranged there is a sad element to the song axel singing about how he feels disconnected yet when i listen to that song i do not feel estranged now on the surface you would say well this is a a, a sad song it's going to make you sad but that's not how I interpret it, because I'm relating with Axel. I understand what Axel's going through, and I kind of think, yeah, I go through that too. So in the relationship with the song, even if I may feel estranged, right, my mood is elevated. I feel better because, oh yeah, there's this guy out there who can uh, sum up this, this precise psychological predicament that I find myself in, that we all find ourselves in to some degree, and he can communicate it in a really powerful way. And there, you know, there's guitar solos towards the end of the song from Slash that kind of uh, contradict a little bit. You know, the song is about being estranged and being sad, but these these triumphant guitar solos come on at the, at the end of the song or towards the end, the last half. And you think, man, well, you know, what's he really saying? You know, not another song that does this really well is uh, Here Comes My Baby by Don McLean. And it's a song about <laughs> this guy who sees this girl out this girl who maybe is his ex-girlfriend i mean i don't really know the song that well maybe it's his ex-girlfriend maybe it's a girl who he likes and he sees her out with another guy so you think oh man this is just going to be a sad mopey song but it's it's interesting i mean the song is just so upbeat and the way i interpret that is yeah if you see your ex-girlfriend or if you see a girl who you like out with another guy man that's sad and, and it really gets to you yet the song is upbeat, so isn't the whole experience triumphant? And just the fact that you can be a human on this earth, experience this supposedly negative emotion, even the fact that you can just experience it, isn't that a triumph in itself? That you can experience it and live through it? You know, isn't that a triumph in itself? And I could just go on. I mean, I, I saw this movie this past week in Berkeley in the 60s. It's a documentary that came out in 1990 about Berkeley, the free speech movement, the hippie movement, how these kind of uh, two movements kind of coalesced in, in the Bay Area, I guess, the hippie movement from San Francisco, the free speech movement from Berkeley, how these two movements kind of coalesced. And it, it's obviously, a, a pro, it tries to be unbiased, right? But it's definitely a pro-hippie, pro-counterculture movie. And I don't think the counterculture was all bad, but I can watch this and not be swayed by it in any way, not think the counterculture was better or somehow did more or somehow its intentions were more righteous, even though that's the clear intention on the movie. I mean, the guy who made the movie, I mean, you know, it, it's very clear. Uh, look, it up. look him up. He comes from a, a certain political bias. 
Although somebody else could watch that movie and be swayed and think that the counterculture, the free speech movement, they definitely cared about free speech and there were no nefarious intentions in that movement. I'm not blaming everybody in that movement for having nefarious intentions, but there were nefarious intentions in that movement. You know, just like there were problems with the right. And, and so for me, this documentary isn't about how the impact of the free speech movement and how the, the cultural revolution that happened in America in the 1960s and into the 70s, how it was this great thing. It's more about the communication between the left and the right in our country and how these problems in communication, you know, you have these two sides just talking past each other, how these problems in communication are still going on today. Right, so it's not just the art, it's not simply the music coming in and affecting your brain. It's are you actively thinking about it? Are you putting context to what you, to what you're listening to? I, I mean, you know, a happy song can make you feel sad, right? It, it depends on who's listening to it. A happy song that came out in 1995, let's say, and that's the, the year your father left and you haven't seen him again. It could be a happy song, but let's say you first heard that song around the time that your dad left. Well, that's going to be a sad song. Well, maybe your dad leaving was sad at the time, but it, it taught you lessons about life and it taught you to, to, to grow up maybe a little bit earlier than you, than you really needed to, but it taught you to grow up. And so now you look back on that experience in a positive light. So that song, whether it's happy or sad, if it came out at a certain time in your life, it's going to make you feel a certain way. Now, <clears throat> these have been arguments, you know, the idea that the, the environment is simply out there and it comes in and affects us. So what we have to do is, is control the environment and cut off certain aspects of art Cut, cut off certain aspects of culture so we're not influenced, right? So we're not getting the psyop that supposedly art is, is trying to um, brainwash us with. Now, these arguments have been coming from the left for a long time. The, the idea that, you know, culture influences us and we're the product of our culture. If we want to change the individual, what we do is, um, is, is we got to change the culture. I mean, I was just listening to... Uh, something on NPR. I don't, know. I don't know why I listen to NPR. I mean, maybe I don't like myself that much, but no, I mean, I mean, that's another example of what I'm talking about. I mean, I like listening to NPR driving to the gym because it fires me up in a way because <laughs> I, I think like I do this kind of implicit game in my head. I mean, this isn't explicit. Uh, I swear I'm not that crazy, but I kind of do this uh, little game in my head of, oh God, this is awful in some strange etherical way i need to have a sweet workout in a sense to compensate for how lame this guy's voice is for how lame ira glass's voice and intonation is i need to have a great military uh shoulder press whatever you want to call it workout to compensate for the fact that this stuff is out there so it actually makes me feel you know like it's like gives me this like nietzschean axe to grind uh and I was listening to NPR the other day, and this lady had the thought, an opinion. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even call it an opinion, but she was talking about the show Family Guy, and there's this joke in there where the character Quagmire, like they, they would open his garage, and every once in a while, like three or four naked Asian women <laughs> would be running out like they were gagged up and tied, like, like he was keeping them as sex slaves, right? 
that was the joke. You know, Quagmire is kind of a pervert, I guess. Uh, they were they were keeping these Asian women as sex slaves, and this woman's thought was that that she stated as a fact that she stated as an incontrovertible fact is, well, this is why we objectify Asian women more in, in culture. I mean, this is one reason, because we grow up watching these jokes and, and laughing along with them, and we don't think about, you know, the effect that it has on our brain, right? That's barely a opinion. That's at most a hypothesis. But of course, you can't test that hypothesis, because how do you determine that that one joke makes us objectify Asian women more in our culture. First, you have to say that we objectify Asian women more in our culture. I don't know how you measure that. I mean, if you want to measure that and you want that to be your outcome, you're going to find a way. But the problem is there's just too many confounding variables in psychological, especially sociological studies. So you're just never going to zero in on the constructs that matter. You're never going to define constructs that really matter in such an experiment. So you can just go on NPR, have this hypothesis, barely uh, a hypothesis, but say it is fact, and people kind of just not along with you. And the left has been doing this for a really long time. And this isn't like left versus right. I don't care. I just want to say both sides now are making this fundamental self-refuting circular error. And it's circular because if culture influences us, how and, and we can't do anything about it, right? It just enters our subconscious mind. We can't do anything about it. We see this joke, and now we're going to be way more likely to objectify, stigmatize, I guess you could say, women of a certain race in our country. If we don't even have the power <laughs> to guard ourselves against that, to guard ourselves against seemingly innocuous joke, really it's making fun of Quagmire and his issues, but the seemingly innocuous joke on this stupid cartoon show if we don't even have the power to that, how are we possibly going to have any kind of power to change culture? It is ultimately self-refuting. You know, the focal point of power, of change, needs to come back to the individual. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to say that, well, we're just going to change culture. Because then I could just say, you know, your opinion that you want to change culture is, is also influenced by culture. It just—it's like an infinite regress circular argument, self-refuting. I'm just saying the same thing in a little bit different way. And the left has been doing this forever, but now uh, I don't know again uh, what Twitter account uh, this tweet comes from that this listener has a question about. But now I just see it coming a lot from the right, from the young right, from mindset bros, from lecture bros—I call them from guys who add 100 pounds to their deadlift and I'm really happy for you, that feels great, and then think now they need to, to come out with a mindset self-help training ebook. Typically Trump supporters, not necessarily, this is not a denigration of Trump supporters, but I do notice this trend now from the right a lot that was previously only, only came from the left. You know, a great example of this is, um, Hard times create strong men. Difficult times. I mean, just the fact that they, that's a pet peeve of mine. Difficult times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create difficult times. So how prosperous the time is, the, how prosperous the time you're living in is affects your character affects the most fundamental thing about you. I'm sorry, but how is this different than an Antifa argument, than what somebody on Antifa would say? 
see, like the, the this government institution or the, or the police station, you know, j just the fact that the police station exists, something like that. What that does to a person who who's a minority in our country, it it completely, well, maybe not completely, but every, right every instance of seeing a police station and, and what that could mean about the you know the threat to your safety as a minority in our country it just inherently invalidates your existence right and now these are coming from the right and it's um and it's really devastating i mean another thing that comes from these twitter bros these lecture mindset bros typically on the right is hey you gotta watch out the, the friends in your so social circle you you are the average of the five friends of your five closest friends are the five people you interact with the most, which is true. That tends to be true. But why? Why is that true? So your buddy's having a difficult time. He's playing a lot of video games. He's smoking a lot of pot. You're just supposed to cut him off. Well, what's going on there? Why are you telling yourself? Ultimately, what I think you're doing is you're cutting him off because you don't know how to talk with him in a healthy way. You don't know how to bring up the fact that his increased pot use, his increased video game consumption, whatever it is, how it's kind of an issue. And hey, buddy, if you need help, you know, I, I see what you're doing here. Uh, maybe we can go to the gym together, you know, whatever it happens to be. Not that it's your responsibility to help him, but just for the sake of communication. Can you reach out? Can you connect with him over these things that bother you? No. Right, just like this lady on NPR was talking about this Family Guy joke. No, you, you can't think of that joke in a different way. That that's the implication. It's not the content of your mind. You have no content to your mind. That ultimately matters. You're just the effect of the environment, whether it's the art you listen to, the friends that that you talk with, um, the the movies you watch. So this is a problem, and I I just want to say something else about this question. Um, I'm not going to really accuse the questioner, the listener of this, but there, but what does he say here? There's another implication of this question that I think is really damaging. Um, he asked, does listening often, often to sad music make you unhappy? Okay, well, he qualifies it. Does listening to sad music make you unhappy long term? Okay, so this is a criticism of, of this listener. Let's just say he asked, does listening to sad music make you unhappy? I'm, just going to use this as a point and springboard into another point. What's the implication there? That being sad or being unhappy is somehow wrong. Now, I understand long term, it's not the healthiest thing. There's things that you can do to be happier, of course, not choosing to be happiness, but understand, of course, how your psychology works, how you relate with your emotions, so you're more likely to be happy long term. But the implication there is, I mean, so what if a, a, a song made you sad? Right? What does that matter? Is being sad worse than being happy? I mean, yeah, okay, long term. It, it indicates some maladaptive relationship that, that you have with yourself, but it's not a problem. I mean, there's something wrong with being sad. What matters, I hope you guys get here, is your relationship with sadness. So my recommendation for anybody out there who wants to really control their environment, control the movies they watch, control the music they listen to, to make themselves feel a certain way. At most, by the way, you're just affecting your mood. You're not affecting your psychology or character or subconscious or unconscious, whatever you want to say. At, at most, you're affecting your mood, which effectively doesn't really matter. Um, 
It's just how you feel in the moment, but it's not necessarily an indication of your psychological health or your character or your boundary, or your emotional regulation. I mean, you can get crappy sleep one night and be in a, in a bad mood. The next day, wake up and feel like a million bucks. I mean, what changed? Did your character change? No, it's just a, a slight fluctuation in the mood. Sunrise, sunset, these things come and go. There's really nothing you can do about that. What I'm talking about here, you know, just to clarify, I probably should have clarified this in the beginning, but it's not mood. It is, does it really affect your character? Does it affect who you are? Does it make you more likely to be unhappy long-term? So what you got to do here is, let's say there's a song that makes you feel sad. Now, perhaps it's a sad song, so it's easy to, to figure out why, but maybe it's not a sad song. Maybe it's a neutral song. I think before you delete it from your Spotify playlist, because you don't want it to affect your unconscious mind, and you know, what, what you do is you ask yourself, why does this make me sad? What is it about this song that makes me sad? What does this mean to me? When did this song come out? When was the first time I may have listened to this song? What is going on? What is this relationship? Same thing if your buddy's you know, playing a lot of uh, video games, smoking pot. It's making you uncomfortable. Why does that make you uncomfortable? Really ask yourself, what does it mean to you? How is your discomfort with your buddy, how is that your responsibility? Not your fault necessarily, but ultimately, how is that your responsibility? What benefit, for example, can, do you get from being uncomfortable by your buddy's you know, pot use? Well, if you're just uncomfortable with it, now maybe you don't have to talk to them about it. Maybe you can just isolate. Maybe what you think you're doing is making your life better. Really what you're, you're doing is avoiding anxiety, increasing the amount of latent anxiety, latent emotional baggage that you have while you tell yourself that you're living a, a better life. I mean, that's really alluring. That's really seductive. To, to make the wrong decision, to make the wrong easy decision, but you rationalize it somehow by following all these Twitter lecture bros online, you rationalize it, say it's actually the right decision. That, that is going to ruin your life. So the first thing you do is you just ask yourself, well, why does this movie make me feel sad? And maybe it, sad's not even the emotion. Maybe it's just weird, icky. You know, I think I did this pr pretty well with one of the, the more, more recent Star Wars, um, Star Wars movies. I think the most recent one that came out, I did a whole podcast about it, and I, I, I just break it down. You know, I just got a strange feeling from it. Why did I get this strange feeling? Where is it coming from? I'm not just going to not watch the next Star Wars movie. Oh, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to relate with it. I'm going to learn more about myself and more about whatever art I consume in the process. Right? I mean, so let's go back to the original tweet. Maybe that'll help. Um... Yeah, I mean, this, this tweet says the instruments make you feel emotional, easy to influence. Lyrics tell your subconscious mind what to believe. Well, why is that? What is it in the lyrics that you believe that maybe you think is wrong? What song does this come from, right? Create a relationship. Create a relationship, engage with reality. That is how you're going to get the most control is if that's what you want. I mean, it's not direct control it is control it's indirect control you're controlling the influence that the that the environment can have on you by creating a better relationship with yourself right that's the that's the issue
Um, you know, there's probably some truth to this, though. Like, like I do know um, a, a famous study. It's in one of these management books I have that I, you know, read a little bit. Um, and it was about creating teams in, in a business. And the study said something to the effect of, like, look, if, if you want people to get along in a team and, you know, create this symbiotic relationship with each, with each other, don't look at how their personality appears or their age or, you know, their sex or whatever. Look at the music they listen to. People who listen to similar music are more likely to get along than people who listen to dissimilar music. So if you're going to split up teams for the sake of unity in that team and them getting along and communicating well, what you would do is, you know, create like a questionnaire like, hey, what kind of music do you listen to? And just split up people because of that. But again, it's circular. It's possibly circular. It begs the question. It literally begs the question. The fallacy of begging the question is, did listening to the music make those people similar or were those people similar because of temperament, because of upbringing, because of maybe the relationship with their father or mother? And that's why they sought out that music and that's why they're more likely to get along. N nobody knows. And again, because of the uh, infinite confounds problem, effectively infinite confounds problem in psychology and psychological studies, especially soci sociological studies, you're never going to know for sure. So there is some truth to this, but again, this comes back to you. Ultimately, it needs to come back to you and how you relate with what you consume and how you relate with the people in your life and everything else. I mean, the main takeaway here, if there isn't going to be a main takeaway, is that, um, you know, it's really powerful. It's really powerful, the idea that there can be a piece of art, a music out there, in the environment and it can simply come in and affect you and if we're so concerned about our beliefs about ourselves and we're so concerned about being in the right mood and talking to ourselves in the right way you know doing our affirmations doing our doing our mindset training which again i think can be helpful but not at the expense at managing fundamental emotional issues which a lot of people never do and then they go you know read a mindset training book and you know beat their head against the wall for five years and think the problem is with them and really it's the problem with the fact that you're following this book written by this guy who great you increase your deadlift by 100 pounds but that doesn't mean you know that much about psychology so we're so concerned about beliefs and what beliefs say and like implications what's the implication of you know like the of uh, this new james bond movie you have the woman uh, driving around James Bond now in this new movie. I mean, I saw that that still is all over the internet a couple days ago. What does this do to our subconscious? Well, what does the belief do that says that the belief says you just passively take in the environment? You know, it's very similar to microaggressions. Uh, there's this thing called microaggressions. I mean, which are true. You know, there is such a thing as a microaggression. Before 2011, it was called a backhanded compliment, and they're annoying. Now, you know, people take that and say, well, look, because of because minorities, you know, hear all these microaggressions, you know, they're more likely to be sad and depressed and anxious. Well, no, you can't. I mean, that that's, again, a hypothesis that you can't really test. Again, going back to the infinite confounds problem. But the microaggression is true. I mean, people do receive backhanded compliments. Uh, you know, maybe minorities receive them more. Sure. And that's it's annoying. I get it. It's annoying. But if we're going to take the idea of a microaggression seriously, what's the ultimate microaggression? 
<laughs> the ultimate microaggression, again, if we're going to take the concept of it seriously, is that microaggressions is that a backhanded compliment from somebody who doesn't interact with black people that much and says something awkward, socially awkward, that that is the cause of your anxiety and depression. I mean, the biggest microaggression is sitting through a microaggression critical race theory class and believing that ultimately, right? I mean, if we're going to take the idea of a microaggression seriously and, and the same thing with this, if we're going to take the, the idea seriously that, that a sad song is going to affect your character in some way, what's ultimately going to affect your character in a negative way the most? The fact that you now believe that a sad song, just the fact that you listen to a sad song or be around your buddy who's smoking too much pot, that this is going to negatively affect your character necessarily. And there's nothing you could do about it besides cut that song out of your life. Cut that buddy out of your life. Right? What, you know, what's the damaging thing here? Um, but this is what we do, right? This is what the left has been doing for a while. This is what the right does now. This is what we do. We don't understand how psychology works. We don't have a view of emotions and how they work and how a dysregulated emotion affects and manifests us, us in our life, how a regulated emotion affects and, and affects us and manifests in our life. We don't have a clear view of this and how emotions are the root of our behaviors and how we want to change our behaviors. What we do is change this relationship with emotions we don't understand that. So what we do is we talk about, when it comes to mental health, we talk about a million different things. You know, um, read this book, take these supplements, do this gratitude list, do these affirmations, do visualizations in this way. Oh no, that, that's the wrong way to do visualizations. Here, do, do visualizations in a completely different way. Uh, do this breathe, breathing technique. And again, I need to emphasize, I think all of these can be helpful. Taking magnesium can be helpful. It can be helpful to your physical health. I understand it can be helpful to your mental health, of course. Is it fundamental? And I think what happens now, guys get in a bad place in their early 20s. I mean, what guy isn't in a bad place in his early 20s? Same thing with women. And they go out and they think, I need to improve. You know, I, I need to be happier. I, I need to set my life up. I think a lot of guys really believe this, you know, or they really think this. And to their credit, like, you know, I, I really want to set my life up so I can be the kind of guy I need to be to, to have, for example, the woman that I want in my life. To have, for example, the job that I want or to start the business that I want. And they go out and they learn 45 different things on mindset, 45 different things on gratitude lists, and they start to do it and it's too much, it's too confusing, they're not managing deeper, more fundamental issues. And again, like I said before, they end up beating their head against the wall and they go nowhere and they think they're the problem, you're not the problem. The problem is the approach. The problem is you gotta learn how your emotions work, what fundamentally affects your psychological health. And that's what, of course, we work on here at Animus. We do free consultations, animusempire.com slash schedule. We have a kind of therapy where we cut out all the crap that is uh, secondary, tertiary, and just stick with the fundamental components. 
It is extremely simple. It is da-da simple. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's still difficult, but we can we we at least have a process we can put you through so that you know eventually you're gonna tackle your emotional issues, right? You're gonna tackle your procrastination, right? No, no different than, you know, you break your leg and it's it sucks and it's painful. And there's nothing I can do about the pain or the fact that it sucks or the fact that it's gonna take eight weeks to heal. But at least when you break your leg, you know what to do, right? We, we have a solution for that. It's painful, of course, but we have a solution for that. And that's what we do here with your psychology, with your emotional baggage, that makes you make decisions that you don't want to make and it keeps you from stopping making decisions that you want to stop making. Again, we do free consultations in missempire.com slash schedule. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you for listening. And remember that of all the relationships that influence you, the one that influences you the most is, of course, your relationship with yourself.